We'd read, as you may have read, dear listener, that there was a remarkable thing that took place back on the 14th of February in 1876. Well, it turns out that supposedly the very day that Alexander Graham Bell received a patent for the telephone, a competitor tried to (laughs) receive a patent on the same day, but was a few hours late. It seems like a remarkable coincidence. And since we don't put that much stock in coincidence theories, we thought this might be a topic worth exploring. And luckily for us, author Seth Shulman wrote a book about this very topic. And he came to speak with us on show number 293. I'm in the phone booth. The birth of the modern telephone came in 1876, at least that was the date, February 14th to be exact, that what has been called the most valuable patent in history was filed. The recipient of that lucrative patent was, as every school child knows, the celebrated inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell. Bell's telephone patent would lead to the establishment of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, a corporate colossus that transformed the way we communicate. Although it's undeniable that the telephone revolutionized the world, allegations surfaced within a decade of 1876 that Mr. Bell's invention may not have sprung solely from his labors. Another inventor, Elisha Gray, had been in the U.S. Patent Office on the same day, attempting to register what was then called a caveat of a key feature that would play a role in Bell's patent. History has ultimately chalked this up as a remarkable coincidence. But our guest today has uncovered new evidence strongly suggesting it was anything but. Writer Seth Shulman specializes in issues in science, technology, and the environment. While he was doing research in MIT's Dibner Institute, Mr. Shulman examined the long hidden notes of Alexander Graham Bell. Upon comparing their contents to the caveat of Elisha Gray, he made a startling discovery. Further research into the matter took him to Ohio and Washington, where more findings cast further doubt upon the version of events recorded in the history books. These discoveries are summarized in the book, The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. We're delighted to speak with this author who joins us today by phone from Massachusetts. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Seth Shulman. Thanks for having me. Now, you discovered a startling pair of diagrams related to the transmitter design of Elisha Gray and the device that Bell patented. But before we talk about that, can we do a little bit of background data? Um, Alexander Graham Bell, very famous name but people may have forgotten a bit about his history. Can you give us a quick review of his life? Well, Alexander Graham Bell is uh, one of the icons of invention, uh, and uh, I had gone for a year to MIT to to do research on him and also uh, another uh, iconic inventor, Thomas Edison. Uh, These guys lived at the same time. In in Bell's case, he was born in Scotland, uh, and he came from a long line of... uh, of people in his family who were specialists in speech. Uh, and like them, he, uh, he uh, worked in that field of speech and the emerging field of acoustics and, uh, and became a very well-known teacher of the deaf. And he moved to Boston uh, as a young man. And in addition to teaching deaf students um, and making some uh, real changes in the way that, that uh, deaf Deaf people were taught to uh, to speak.
speak at that time, um, he also was conducting some some research um, leading him toward the telephone. At that time, what was happening uh, is that the telegraph was really popular, and people were sending telegrams all over the place, and at that time, you could only send one telegram at a time over the existing telegraph wire, so they were stringing wires up all over the place, and so the holy grail of that moment in time that, uh, that was occupying the minds of people like Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, and Elisha Gray was to try and find a way to design a telegraph that could send multiple messages at the same time, and this is what, uh, this is what Alexander Graham Bell was working on. Uh, back in 1876. And, and at the same time, evidently so was Mr. Elisha Gray, who's, who's forgotten by history. Can you give us a little bit of background on him as well? Well, Elisha Gray uh, was another brilliant inventor of the period, and uh, ironically, as I, uh, uh, as I came to learn, he, in his own day, was probably more famous than, than Bell. He's about 12 years older, and he had made some important improvements to the telegraph uh, and was such a good inventor uh, and instrument builder, in fact, that he had started a company that became Western Electric, which was the manufacturer that became a supplier to Western Union, which had a virtual monopoly on the, on the telegraph. So uh, uh, Elisha Gray had been uh, born in poverty in the Midwest and uh, in Ohio and uh, was largely self-taught. And uh, it turns out that he... Uh, uh, as far as my research shows, made uh, one of the really big breakthroughs that made the telephone possible. Uh, he found a way to convert the sound waves of a person's voice into an electric current that could be carried on a telegraph wire. Uh, he did it through a, a liquid transmitter, and uh, this is the first successful method to, to do that. It had been the stumbling block for a lot of people who were researching in this area. And it was his sketch for a liquid transmitter uh, that I discovered in Bell's own hand, in his notebook, just a day before uh, he had his success calling to Watson. Bell drew a, a sketch that was virtually identical to a device that Elisha Gray had uh, filed in a confidential filing at the patent office some three weeks earlier. It kind of gets important to explain the difference between a caveat and a patent uh... Uh, a little background data, perhaps, on, on how patents are issued, how they're supposed to work, and, and what, like, what a caveat was. The basic idea of the patent system hasn't changed too much since, since that time, but there, there were some changes to it. And uh, in those days, probably the most important change for people to understand is that in those days, you had to actually submit a working model of your invention at the patent office to receive protection, to receive a, a patent that would be good for 17 years where you'd have the exclusive right to develop that. So the patent office required a, an actual model, which they, they don't do any longer. Uh, so many of the things being patented today, whether it's a human gene or whatever it might be, uh, it's almost unthinkable to imagine a, a model requirement at the patent office. But in those days, that was the rule. And what they allowed is that if a, an inventor had an idea for something that they could diagram out and explain, but they hadn't yet made the prototype of it, they'd allow them to have something called a caveat. And uh, that gave them a grace period of a number of months before which time they could have all the same rights of a U.S. patent with the proviso that they would uh, ultimately submit the working model. And Gray had, had done all the work to, to 
uh, outline and diagram this machine, a liquid transmitter, but had not yet submitted a, a working model. And so what he had from the patent office was a caveat. The thing, of course, that when I was um, doing this research at MIT, uh, I was researching Bell because I admired him and um, had gone back about a year before his success with the telephone uh, reading his laboratory notebook. And when I spotted this dramatic change in his research where he shifts the type of work he was doing on his transmitter so close uh, to the time when he had a success, it really piqued my interest. And then when I saw that sketch uh, and realized that it was virtually identical to something that Elisha Gray had already filed at the patent office, um, it set me on an on a odyssey that completely changed my research and uh, set me off all over the place to try and, and get to the bottom of it. I mean, uh, my initial sense was that I, I must be wrong. Uh, how could this possibly have, have happened? How could Bell have gotten access to this thing? Uh, how could he have gotten away with it? Why wouldn't Gray have uh, screamed bloody murder that, uh, that some, someone uh, was coming out with an invention that was so identical to one that he had already um, filed for at the patent office? And in addition, how could it be that nobody had noticed this before? Because it's right there sitting in, in, in Alexander Grenfell's notebooks. And how was that no one had noticed this? <laughs> well, you know, these are, these are some of the questions that I set out to answer, and the amazing thing is that as I started doing this work, every time I'd try and make an inroad to uh, understanding or solving one problem, the mystery would seem to, seem to deepen. The fact of the matter is when I, I started looking into the actual filings that, that these two men made, uh, there were all sorts of suspicious things about Bell's filing. Uh, some of the key language is actually written in the margins of the actual patent application that's in Bell's file, uh, indicating that it was done uh, presumably at a later date. Uh, when I looked at the timing of the filings, there's all sorts of interesting things I was able to find out about that. And, uh, and so the mystery just deepens. Uh, uh, there's corruption in a lot of high places. There's, a, there's even a, a love story at the, at the heart of, of this as well. I'm keen to, to get into all of these, but, but what struck me <laughs> right. reading your book was the fact that, uh, a highly suspicious fact that you came upon this, this matter of, of Bell versus Gray, something that was, you know, drugged through the courts extensively in the late uh, 19th century, but no one could have seen that diagram because uh, no one had access to Bell's original uh, notebooks, but, but you did. Right. Well, now everybody does. Uh, since 1999, they've been put up on the web uh, by the Library of Congress in a high-resolution digital format, and uh, that's what I was using. Uh, they have a collection of, of Bell's writing, uh, his notebook, a lot of his correspondence, all there in his own hand. You can pull up the actual pages of the notebook just as he wrote them, and it's a fabulous resource uh, and uh, a collection that's enormous. It contains uh, 147,000 documents, um, all of which uh, are now available to everyone. In those days, of course, even though there was a lot of controversy over Bell's claim to the, to the telephone, uh, no one in that in that time had access to this information, uh, which goes pretty far to explaining at least some parts of the of the puzzle. But uh, but there's there turns out to be a lot more to it. It's a pretty twisted tale. Let's go back to that fateful day, February fourteenth, eighteen seventy six. The historians usually record that it's an odd coincidence that Elisha Gray filed something very similar to what Bell did. But apparently he did so after Bell on the same day, but y y your, your research indicates that's, that's not at all the case. 
Right. Well, it turns out that uh, that I was able to really uh, uh, make some inroads into finding out exactly what happened at the patent office. I started by looking at the actual filings, the different versions that I could dig up of, of, the, fi- of the actual applications, and then some of the internal memos in the patent office about how it was handled. And, uh, you know, one of the themes of this, this book throughout is this, this issue of how we remember history. And a lot of times when I'd come up against, uh, you know, I was working at MIT with a, with a bunch of uh, top-notch historians. This was the first year they uh, decided to have a non-historian. I'm a, a journalist who specializes in, in science and technology, mostly contemporary things. Um, but I had a lot of help from a lot of, a lot of historians in doing some of this work. And uh, the, the thing that really struck me is this, this uh, uh, that when I would often confront a, an issue like this, and then I'd go to the secondary sources to try and see how, uh, how some of this might have been explained in a biography or whatever, uh, it often uh, was amazing to see how, uh, how these powerful kinds of historical myths develop. And so I, I, uh, I end up writing this as, as a lot of a, pretty much of a, a nonfiction detective story, and I really uh, try to include a lot of, a lot of that, uh, that discussion along the way, both from Bell's time as well as the way uh, the, the story has been told uh, since, since that, that time. We're speaking with Seth Shulman, the author of The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. You compare this this diagram in in Bell's notebooks to what uh, Elisha Gray had put into his caveat. They're suspiciously similar in how he was using this uh, this transmitter, which of course was was needed to make the phone work. But um, from day one, there's oddities going on in terms of how the patent was handled. Can you talk a little bit about about the the, the behavior of the patent office? Well, sure. The fact of the matter is that uh, throughout. Uh, it seems as that Bell's patent lawyers, who are a very high-powered firm uh, in Washington, D.C., pulled all sorts of strings uh, that, that made his patent be handled uh, in a different way from other patents. And one of the key things that they did that ends up being very important that I was able to nail down is that they actually hand-delivered uh, his patent application, not just through the normal channels, but took it directly to a particular examiner. So they bypassed the usual system. Now, uh, given the fact that, uh, you know, the way the story is told, as you say, is that uh, uh, if, you, if you read the, the history books, usually it's told that, well, there was this coincidence, these two inventors happened to file for similar things on the same day, and Elisha Gray just got there several hours later, and too bad for him, and it makes him kind of a, a footnote of history. Um, in fact, when you start looking into it, uh, there are all sorts of anomalies about it, and the, the fact that we have documentation that they did this unusual kind of filing of bypassing the system strongly indicates that they must have somehow been tipped off to the fact that, uh, that Elisha Gray was already filing this. Much later in his life, Gray also dispels a lot of this because he, uh, he explains that he had gone to the patent office first thing that morning. So a lot of the standard story, the way it's told, just doesn't add up from some of the facts of the time that, that we're able to uh, unearth today. Well, lawyers are never never too popular. Uh, in this case of Bell versus Gray, can we blame a lot of the skullduggery on the men's legal representatives? Well, I think we can. You know, one of the... Uh, the key legal representatives was a guy named Gardner Green Hubbard, who was Bell's financial backer. 
he plays a very important role in the story. He uh, came from one of the wealthiest families in Boston and was a patent lawyer and an entrepreneur and was financing Bell's research. And the thing that, uh, that greatly complicated matters is that right in the middle of this tale when Bell's doing this work on the telephone, he, uh, he fell madly in love with Gardner Green Hubbard's daughter, Mabel Hubbard, who happened to be deaf. And uh, it was actually the way he first met Hubbard uh, because he, he tutored Mabel Hubbard uh, as uh, one of his students became infatuated with her, so much so that Bell's assistant Watson writes that he was often so distracted he could hardly do his work. Uh, and it complicated matters, of course, because now Bell not only wanted to make a return for, the, for Gardner Green Hubbard's investment, but he also hoped to win the hand of this guy's uh, charming and wealthy daughter, and Bell was not a man of means. So, uh, so it put him in a, in a difficult position. And again, remember, when this is taking place, he's 29 years old. So yes, there were all sorts of bits and pieces to this puzzle that, uh, in this case, uh, the stuff I was finding out along the way, to me, seemed a lot more interesting than the story that we're all told in school. Well, you mentioned you know Bell being a devoted teacher of the deaf people. People who knew him found him to be a very admirable uh, man in in many ways. But as you outline in the book, it does seem clear that a lot of his later actions look like those of a man uh, bothered by guilt. Well, that's right. You know, uh, I mean, there's a lot to admire about Bell. He was uh, he was a real visionary, and uh, I set about to conduct research on him because of my admiration for him. But uh, but as you say, you know, in the book I describe it. Uh, the experience for me was uh, was like falling through some kind of historical trap door. Uh, once I had discovered this and started to see how many things didn't add up in the conventional story and how much the truth seemed to be so at odds with the, the standard history that's been written for so long, it gave me a whole different lens through which to look at so many things that happened in Bell's later life. And, I mean, just to give you one example, one thing you'll find in almost all the history books is, is uh, that Bell often said that he preferred to be remembered as a teacher of the deaf rather than as the inventor of the telephone. And this is usually described as an example of what a great humanitarian he was. And uh, not to take away from any of the humanitarian acts that he did, but I think uh, the, the stuff that I've unearthed throws a statement like that into a very different light. Well, I've got a couple questions here to, to, to wrap this up. I, I think the first one would be, how would you like to see the story of the telephone rewritten for the history books? Well, that's a really good question, and it's um, certainly a big theme of the book. You know, I, as, as you pointed out, I'm hardly the first person to, uh, to raise these kinds of questions. There was controversy about this that goes all the way back to Bell's own time, um, and the history books haven't been, been changed yet, so I hardly have any confidence that... Uh, that even if a lot of people do read this and are persuaded by it, um, I should say, by the way, that there are lots of, of documents in there. You can look at the pictures in his notebook uh, for yourself and judge for yourself. But even if, if I'm able to persuade a lot of readers that I've, I've gotten the account straight, uh, the thing I learned is that historical myths are incredibly powerful. And, uh, and actually, in a part of the book, I, I do... Uh, a search on the computer to just look at how many times the story's told. It's in kids' books and electronics textbooks and encyclopedias. And, 
and it's going to stay there. there. It's not something that changes overnight. If I had my way and could change all that, I think um, I think we'd do a lot better to have a much fuller picture uh, and not always try to reduce things to the single inventor. There were a lot of people that made contributions to the telephone. Um, and in this particular case, people have really latched onto it, uh, partly because it's a, a wonderful twisted tale of the time, but it had such huge consequences it really did did change history. Um, uh, as you pointed out at the beginning, the uh, this is still considered to be the most lucrative patent ever issued in America, and uh, and it spawned uh, one of the largest monopolies that the world has ever known. So the, the stakes of this, uh, the aftermath of this, were extremely high. Final comment and question for you. It strikes me in reading your book, and, and I agree, it is it is a good read, like, like a detective story. But what emerged for me that, that shocked me was that uh, in science you're used to the fact that this person makes a contribution, that person makes a contribution, and, and science evolves. In, in this technologic matter, especially where money's involved, uh, we tend to sort of focus on, on one person being the inventor. But you describe in the book how a, a crudely functioning phone had been developed a decade earlier in Europe. It's sort of like almost a mythology forms that someone is the lone inventor that gets the credit. Well, I think that's a really great point, and I, I hope that, you know, along with the good detective story, uh, the book can raise those kinds of questions for readers, and, uh, and I, hope it, I, I hope that's of interest to people. I, I think you've got it exactly right, especially with matters of technology. We really let the, the winners write the history, and, uh, and there's no question here that the Bell Telephone Company was, was the big winner as it became a monopoly of this incredibly important and powerful new technology. Um, that has a lot to do with the, with the way uh, what we know about it filters down. Um, when you go back and look, I think it gives uh, a really uh, an expanded and, and more nuanced kind of uh, picture that's important, uh, not just for understanding this story, but for understanding the kinds of, of stories that we're dealing with all the time. After all, just like in Bell's day, we're living in a time of tremendous technological change. And uh, it's something that, uh, for me, as a journalist writing about this stuff, there's something uh, illuminating there for me in my own work as someone who's trying to do that first draft of history uh, as I go along. The book is The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. We'll be speaking with author Seth Shulman. We recommend the book highly and want to thank you for speaking with us, Mr. Shulman. Well, I thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. It appears we have a few minutes to spare on this show, so Mr. Miller and I think we'll dust off a, one of our favorite bits of comedy. 
Well, we've had from time to time with us uh, experts. We always love to bring them on our programs and shows. Tonight is Dr. Daryl Dexter, the Kubota Dragon expert from uh, Upper Montclair, New Jersey. Say, uh, would you tell us a little bit about the Komodo Dragon, Doctor? Happy to. The Komodo Dragon is the world's largest living lizard. It's a ferocious carnivora found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo in the Lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. Where do they come from? The Komodo dragon, world's largest living lizard, is found on the island of Komodo in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. Now, we have two in this country that were given to us some years ago by the late former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno, and they reside in the National Zoo in Washington. I uh, believe I read somewhere where a foreign potentate gave America some Komodo dragons. Uh, is that true? Yes. The former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno, gifted our country with two Komodo dragons world's largest living lizards, and they reside at the National Zoo in Washington. Well, now, if uh, we wanted to take the youngsters <laughs> to see a Komodo dragon, uh, where would we take the youngsters to see a Komodo dragon? If you were in the vicinity of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., you would take the kiddos to the National Zoo, and there you'd see two live Komodo dragons, the world's largest living lizards. There's a stuffed Komodo dragon in the lobby of the Royal Hotel in Kathmandu, Nepal. Now, they're the lizard family, aren't they? Yes. They're the world's largest living lizard, and a ferocious carnivory. They have red darting tongues which suck in air and take it to their smelling glands and their throats. Now, uh, do they eat other things, these uh, Komodo dragons? Yes, they're ferocious carnivores. In fact, they can gulp down the hindquarters of a deer in one bite. And uh, what about that smelly tongue they have? No, they have a red tongue, which brings in air to their smelling glands. Okay. Well, I guess that about exhausts the subject, Doctor. I want to thank you for coming by. I know we all know a good deal more now about the Komodo Dragon than we did a few moments ago. Do you have a ride home? No, I don't. Well, maybe somebody here in the audience will give you a lift after the show. Very kind of them if they would. Why don't you stand over there, okay? Thank you. pretty much wraps it up. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This is Radio Parallax. 
I'm Douglas Everett. On next week's show, we're going to talk about some science stuff. Be sure to listen in.